what I wanted to do initially was give you some scripture and also a little uh, theological lesson in Wesleyan theology. So uh, the first part is the scripture from John chapter 10, and it goes like this. This is Jesus speaking. He says, I assure you that whoever doesn't enter into the sheep pen through the gate, but climbs over the wall is a thief and an outlaw. The one who enters through the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. And he goes on to say, the guard at the gate opens the gate for him and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Whenever he, he has gathered all of his sheep, he goes before them and they follow him because they know his voice. So one of the first things uh, in the scripture is God wants to be known. And what he does is he calls us together to identify his voice because the sheep hear their name but then the teaching comes when they're all gathered together. And so part of this learning to hear God's voice is there is a part where it's individual, but there, there is definitely a part where it's a community. Okay, and so you, to only think that I hear God's voice, nobody else does, that's a, not scripturally accurate, okay? So going on, Jesus says, they won't follow a stranger, but will run away because they don't know the stranger's voice. So those who heard Jesus use this analogy didn't understand what he was saying. So Jesus spoke again, I assure you that I am the gate of the sheep. All who came before me were thieves and outlaws, but the sheep didn't listen to them. So Jesus says he's the gate, right? I am the gate, whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief enters only to steal, kill and destroy. I came that they could have life indeed so that they could live life to the fullest. So there's a couple things about God's voice. One is sometimes we look at a gate and we think it's keeping us away from something. but. When Jesus talks about a gate, he's saying it's actually an opportunity to be able to experience something. So rather than keeping you out, this gate is an invitation. So th the fact that, that you have questions about God and things, he's, he welcomes it. Because it's a gate not to keep you out, but to invite you in. Okay. The other thing is they are people who were thieves and outlaws, and what happens is that they come to steal, kill, and destroy, right? So one of the things about God's voice is it's never going to be about stealing, killing, or destroying either other people or yourself. So God is not a God who is trying to withhold things from you. God is a God who is inviting you into something greater, and it, that's why he says that the, uh, in the Next slide here, it talks about, I came so that they could have life, indeed, so that they could live life to the fullest. So one of the primary characteristics about God's voice is it's going to be liberating. It's 
going to be free. It's going to be something that is going to be fulfilling to who you really are. Okay. So the next slide. This is from 1 John, and it says this, But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. I don't write to you because you don't know the truth, but because you know it. You know that no lie comes from the truth. Okay? God doesn't lie. Okay? So when his voice is given, there's no lie in it. And what is a lie? So the next passage says this. Who is a liar? Isn't the person who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This person is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Everyone who denies the Son does not have the Father, but the one who confesses the Son has the Father also. So part of God's voice would be it would lead us toward Jesus and not away from him. And that is basically how we can identify God's voice. Is, is, is it leading us toward Jesus? Is it leading us toward who Jesus really is, or is it leading toward something else? And if, that can be a person who's claiming, you know, I could really teach you something. Well, you have to be careful, right? Because it, it's, well, are they going to lead you toward Jesus? Are they going to lead you toward being dependent on them, or making them themselves feel better? So the one overall characteristic is found in Romans. And this says this. So what are we saying to these things, saying about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Won't he also freely give us all things with him? Who will bring a charge against God's elect people? It is God who acquits them. Who is going to convict them? It is Christ Jesus who died, even more who was raised and who also is at God's right hand. It is Christ Jesus who also pleads our case. So basically, if what you think God is saying to you is to bring condemnation to you, it's, it's probably not God, because God is standing up for you. When you've made a mistake, God will point out the mistake, but not in a condemning way. So what happens is we have these different voices that come into our head, okay? And one voice is the voice of ourself, which is basically the sum of the experiences we've had in life. So maybe we've been told that because you are five feet nine, you will never be a basketball player, okay? And so you, you, you say, well, yeah, I am five feet nine, so therefore that must be true, okay? It's called a half-truth, right? Doesn't necessarily follow from the, the fact, does not necessarily lead to the conclusion. And so you have to be careful when somebody says something that's factual, is, does that fact really lead to that conclusion? Or is there other ways to look at this? And, and one of the things is, if there's any condemnation around that fact, even though you may have the, the sin and things, that conclusion is not where God is at. Where God is at is, this was a mistake. How can we journey through this? Let me show you. Let me journey with you. 
And there is no mistake that God cannot overcome. If we went on further into this passage, it talks about what can separate us from the love of God. And there's nothing. So nothing you do, nothing, you, nothing that other people believe about you can separate you from what God wants to do and wants to bring about in your life. So how that all ties into, to, in a practical way, to the uh, voice of God, I'm going to give you a little lesson on what's called, uh, what's been termed the Wesleyan quadrilateral. John Wesley was the founder of Methodism, which, as Kotz talked about, uh, was uh, the original Methodist, who the Free Methodists basically broke away from. But, we, but as Free Methodists, we took on a lot of Wesley's theology and understanding. So this is, this is uh, Wesley did not really write this. This is more a compilation in later years of, of people who studied his teachings and kind of put it together. But it's, the Wesleyan quadrilateral is a way to determine whether or not this is God speaking, okay? And it starts off with the first part is scripture. Now, you, now, these are all going to be circles, and you're going to be wondering, well, how does that make it a quadrilateral? Because isn't a quadrilateral happening in four corners? I, the, the idea is that uh, there's uh, what's called the four corners of the world, right? Which is, represents the whole world, or the points on the compass. There's four points on the compass, north, south, east, and west. Those four points, that represents the totality. Right? So this represents a totality of being able to look at what is God's will and what isn't. So the first part is scripture, which is kind of self-evident that we hold scripture to be where we go to. And it's the overriding thing. So this is the big circle thing. Okay? But within that scripture, we have tradition. Tradition is not necessarily bad. Sometimes we think tradition is bad because it, it, it kind of implies a mindless rote, okay? Actually, tradition is meant to remind us of the way that God worked. So, so in the part of being able to discern God's will is look at tradition. Look at what other people in, in past times wrote about that scripture and to, to use that tradition, okay? The second part is reason, okay? Reason is thinking. God does not ask you to turn off your brain to believe in him. He invites you to, to use your reason. The, the statement I made about you have, you're given one fact and then it leads to a conclusion, you have to use your brain to see if that's really logical. Does that really work, okay? Or does that really follow, okay? The last part is experience, okay? Experience is where we, uh, well, to me it's two things. One is it's the Holy Spirit and our own interaction with the Holy Spirit and how we have seen God work in our past and in, in our way. The other thing is 
that experience to me implies a community. That that you have you you have theology developed best when it's developed in a the, in a community. Because none of us has complete knowledge, none of us has complete wisdom as far as who God is. And so we need each other to give uh, input and feedback and things. So those are the elements of the Wesleyan quadrilateral, okay? And so putting all that together says this. When, when you're looking to see if what God is saying, you look at scripture, you use tradition, maybe in your particular case, it's things that have happened in the past that you've seen God involved in. Reason is you think about it, you ask questions. And to me, experience is that you're willing to, to talk about it with other people, that you invite other people to be involved in that. Because it's not designed to find God's will, I believe, just by your own thinking and going off all by yourself and, and coming up with this plan and coming back and saying, God said this. Okay, I don't believe that. I believe God does speak to us, but I think he speaks to us in terms of the community. And that's why we need to be have community. Okay? So, let me go with this first question. How do I know it's God's voice? Okay? From what I just said, but also I believe there's I, you can sum it up this way. One is, does it lead me to loving Jesus more? If it doesn't lead me to love Jesus more, then I kind of, I truly believe it's not. It says no one, in Corinthians it talks about, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So all God is going to communicate would be involved with leading us toward understanding who Jesus is. Now, having said that, that first part in John 10 about who Jesus is, he's a gate, he's an opportunity. So does it, so part of God's voice would be, well, is this really a place where I'm starting to be able to step into maybe who I am, who I really am, into the freedom of who God made me to be? Or is the voice I'm hearing the voice of other people telling me what I should do? Is it the voice of my own fears? Is it, where, where, what is the voice I'm hearing? And that's where I believe you can, part of that can be helped by being in community, to be able to share that, to be able to receive that. And so I think to know God's voice, it's a combination of knowing scripture, it's a combination of using reason, it's a combination of being uh, able to, to look back and see if that's consistent with what God has been doing in the past. And lastly, it's, it's being able to do it in community, to experience it together, okay? So the next question is this. What happens when God is silent? Okay. <clears throat> Excuse me. The um, nature of the way God communicates is, I know we talked, we're saying 
how do I know the voice of God? I want to change that a little bit and say, how do we know it's the presence of God? Because I believe that God doesn't just speak in a, in a voice. I know, I know that's a metaphor and thing. But let me expand that metaphor, okay? You, on our physical level, we experience the world with hearing, with sight, with touch, with taste, with smell, right? I believe your soul has senses similar. I believe your soul has a sense of hearing. I believe your soul has a sense of sight. I also believe your soul has a sense of touch. Your soul has a sense of smell. Your soul has a sense of taste. And part of when God is silent may be that God is inviting you to develop a different sense in which you experience his presence. Because there's no place that God is not present. You could have done the very worst thing. And the, the biggest lie that the enemy or people will tell you is, you're all by yourself, you've got to figure this out. Or you can't say this to anybody. Because if, if they found out, they would just shun you. The truth is, God is there. The truth is that, that he does not run away when we, when we make a mistake. The truth is that wherever we may find ourselves, God is present. Now, let, let me talk a little bit about those other senses, okay? Uh, an animal has a sense of smell such that it can tell a presence of a being or a, a certain thing without ever seeing it, without ever hearing it, without anything other than it smells it, right? And it knows it's there. And I believe that there are times when God wants to be able to just have us be able to breathe in his presence and know that he's there, even though we don't see it, even though we don't hear it, even though there seems to be no evidence of it, that we can't touch it. And if we can develop that, it can lead to an understanding of how we are never alone. That even though things and, and all kinds of beings hide God's presence, that he's there. There is also an aspect of, to me, hearing. It's like, in this room, there's all kinds of sound waves, right? Like, there are TV signals, there's uh, cell phone things, but we don't hear it, but it's there. So if we were tuned in, we would hear it, right? If we had a receiver to be able to hear it, we would hear it. But, but is that really necessary? Well, if you're bored, yeah. So you could do, have something more entertaining. But I believe that there are certain times when God is, is present, but 
our receiver is off, or we, we aren't in tune with that, and maybe it's because he doesn't want us to be. And that's okay, because it, there's something that he wants us to put our attention to. And so, God is, to me, God is not a passive God. God is an active God. And so, as much as you want to hear him, he also wants to speak to you. And so it's, it's an interaction that his desire is to make this connection. So when God is silent, if, if that question is about, uh, I get this a lot in, in spiritual direction where they don't know where God is in it, I ask them to imagine that they're coming to God and he doesn't say a word, just like the prodigal son. The father doesn't say a word, right? The father instead embraces the son. Now, when you embrace someone, you don't see their face anymore, right? When, when they're, you just experience a touch. And you may not, they may not say anything. You just feel their touch, you feel their strength. When God is silent, Maybe part of it is he doesn't want you to try anymore. He wants, to, he wants to hold you. He wants to let you know that he wants this relationship more than you do. And he wants you to know that you are loved. And however that, however that works for you, maybe you're this kind of guy who doesn't like to be touched and stuff. Well, maybe there's, to go back to smell, there's an aroma, right? There's something that fills the portion of your consciousness that you don't see an aroma, you can't touch an aroma, you can't hear an aroma, but you know it's there and it interacts with you, okay? So, that kind of leads to this la the next question here. It says, what are different ways we hear or sense God's voice? I, I talked about smelling, right? Uh, let me be a little more specific in smelling. I believe that as we experience God, uh, we acquire a taste for what God is. Part of enjoying a meal is being able to smell the aroma of that meal. And that aroma, to me, represents a portion of the property of who God is, okay? So it's not like you uh, have to figure out, well, is this God smell or not, right? It, you go back to the, to the original things. And, but I, I believe that if you're seeking to develop these other senses, that they're going to be uniquely yours, right? I like food that is pretty bland, okay? My, my uh, wife likes more spices and things, but I like bland food, okay? So for me, uh, She'll cook something and says, well, this is, this is pretty bland. 
I said, well, well, it tastes good, okay? And I'm not saying that because I'm trying to make it feel good. That's how it, 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 it really is for me, all right? There may be times when what God is saying to you may not make sense to somebody else, but you know it's your communication, okay? So, when we go to the next question here. It says, what happens when two equally devout people pray for opposing things? Okay? Let me say this, that uh, it says that all things work together for good for those who love God. That's Romans 8.28. So God is not so much interested in the outcome because whatever the outcome is, he's going to make it good. It may be look bad for one person and better for the other person. But the goal of that is not what God is interested in. The goal of it is, the goal of prayer, kind of what Pastor Koss talked about, the goal of prayer is communion. The goal is developing a relationship. The goal is to be able to know that, that you're loved by God and by other people. So the purpose of prayer is not to, to necessarily make an outcome happen. The purpose of prayer is to develop a relationship. Now, what, what happens when that happens? Well, what happens when two people disagree on, on a, a food? Well, some people can go to war over it, right? But, but really, the more healthy way is to be able to expand perhaps your uh, view of food. That it all doesn't have to taste this way. It can taste that way. I don't necessarily have to like it, but it's okay. So praying, uh, you know, I know there's teams that pray for a win for the game, that they'll, they'll win the game. Okay, that's, that's okay. But if they don't win the game, what happens to their relationship with God? Okay, and that's what God is going to be more interested in than whether or not they win the game. Okay, next question. Does God answer questions from unbelievers or prayers prayed for unbelievers? The short answer is yes. The, the, uh, let, me, let me give you a, a, what I call a hand illustration. Okay, this hand represents you and this hand represents God. Okay. And when you were created, God put his hand on you. And so, God has his hand on every single person. Because there's no place that you can go where you can escape God's presence. So he's there. Now, my hand like this is not responding to God holding on to me. Right, because I, I could be pulling, I could be doing all this kind of stuff, but I'm not really interacting with this other hand. God's desire is for me to go like this and put our hands together. So I believe that if the goal of prayer is, as Pastor Cotts talked about, communion, then God's going to listen to everybody. And he's going to listen for for people who are praying on behalf of everybody. The verse in Romans said 
that Christ intercedes for us. You know, what a part uh, intercession means to speak on somebody's behalf, to ask, to give voice to something that they can't give voice to. Because really, the goal of God is that we have a relationship with him. And really, that is where we're going to find our true self and our fulfillment. It's not going to be an achievement. It's not going to be having everybody think we're good or having people say we're good. It's in that relationship and having that relationship. Okay, so the next question is, can we pray to reconcile the differences among Christians whose beliefs seem to go against what Jesus taught? Again, the short answer to that, yes. Uh, you know, I believe that part of what God wants to do in spending time in the midst of uh, things that don't seem right or are not right is to be able to really demonstrate his persistence, his resiliency. When he says he will not run out on you, that you will have proof of that, that he will not. Because it's easy to say, right? Oh, I'll always be with you. But when it, when it actually happens, is that person there? And my assertion to you is that God will never run out on you. He will be there. There isn't any place that he won't be there for you. Okay? So, when, to reconcile the differences among Christians who believe seem to go against what Jesus taught, what I would do, what I would pray, is to pray that we all see Jesus. Because Jesus is certainly able to help expand our hearts and to be able to love one another. One of the, command, one of the things that Jesus said was, uh, to pray for those who persecute you. Okay. When Jesus was on the cross, he prayed for the people. He said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. There were, very, there were a lot of ways, especially if, if you think about it on the cross. That was God, right? Jesus is God. And so them doing all those those unjust and, and horrible things in the name of God, he could have just said, I'm going to show you what the name of God is. And in power demonstrated, they are all wrong. You're all wrong. But instead, what he did was he demonstrated to them. To me, one of the messages to me from the cross is, I may be so mad at God, I may be doing such horrible things against God, but he's going to be there right there and say, I forgive you. Let's come back together. Let's work it out. Because God isn't into condemnation. If he was into condemnation, this would have been over a long time ago. Right? And let me, let me just add this. I work, I spend a lot of time at 
retirement and assisted living homes. And there are people who wonder that uh, whether or not it's uh, what their life means now, because they basically can't, they, in their view, they can't do anything. And what I try to help them see is, well, the breath you've been given was not something that you demanded or that you earned. It was given. It's a free gift. And so in that free gift, God has a purpose. And who you are is meant to be able to bless someone. It's like God created beauty and you're part of that beauty. And so part of it is, even though people go against us, the idea is, where is God's beauty in this? How do I see God's beauty? We're going to close with this, this opportunity to do something of a, a nature of kind of making a little application of this, okay? Maybe you have what, what I call a distorted image of God which is basically that maybe in, in church or, or things that you've seen God as someone who is powerful and mighty, but not necessarily for you, not necessarily for the things that uh, you are passionate about. What, I, what I'm gonna invite you to do is this, is wherever you feel like there's been a rub between you and God. To kind of bring that up to him. And then what we're going to do is, I said that good theology is not made just individually. Good theology is made in community. We're going to give you an opportunity. You don't have to share exactly what that distortion is, but we're going to have people in the back to be able to pray that who God really is will be shown to you and that you will be able to to see God as he really is. And that, that anything that has polluted, that has distorted that, will be done away with.